This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvallis, the host of Radio National Drive, an afternoon briefing on the ABC News Channel, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Fran Kelly from RM Breakfast on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. Soon we're going to be joined by the ABC's Stan Grant to talk about the spread of COVID into Indigenous communities and the slow pace of the rollout in these communities. But first, the arguments around the national COVID plan go on between the federal government and the states and territories, which is surprising really because it's a plan to reopen the country and the economy that was agreed on by the states and the federal government in the National Cabinet. That agreement, though, it seems is conditional and getting more so by the day as the gap between the states and the territories with COVID and those without COVID just gets wider. And this week, it was the Labor premiers of WA and Queensland that pushed back hard. The Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, basically saying that they're not going to open the Queensland border, quote, until she can get every child vaccinated. Mr Speaker, we need some medical advice because if you're going to let the virus in and rip through, obviously, because the opposition wants that to happen, right? What's going to happen to the children, Mr Speaker? What's going to happen to the children, Mr Speaker? And the West Australian Premier, Mark McGowan, he accused the Morrison government this week of, quote, being on a mission to bring COVID into WA to infect our public. The idea we just deliberately infect our citizens if we have no COVID when we get to 70% two-dose vaccination, I just can't do it because people will die. So the stakes are high. Help me out here, PK. Mm -hmm. Are some of these states opposed to the national plan, meaning a greater opening up when we hit vaccination rates of 80%, or are they opposed to opening up to a state that still has very high infection rates at that stage? And, and is there a difference? Yeah, I think, I think that they are both, to be honest, if you analyse what they're saying, which is what I'm basing it on. So the national plan that they did agree to, the Doherty modelling, doesn't include children being vaccinated. And when they walked out of that meeting, uh, Queensland, it seemed, had signed up to that model. Since that, I do think that the Queensland Premier has changed the goalposts, actively changed the goalposts, saying all children should be vaccinated. Now, let's just be clear here. Under-12s don't even have a vaccine, right? There's not even one available at this stage of the pandemic for them. So Nowhere in the world. It's not yeah, just in Australia. There's not one approved right. anywhere. So that's waiting indefinitely but on that basis. And mm. even f 12 and up, the process will be longer and they're still not included in the targets, right? So Queensland is changing the goalposts. The issue around high numbers from New South Wales, I do think that's a more interesting proposition because the Doherty modelling, yes, they've come out and said higher numbers, um, a higher outbreak, a bigger outbreak, they still think that the model works. They have. They've done that. But regardless of them doing that after 
the agreement was based on a model, which was a smaller outbreak. So I do mm. think that on that front, the states, WA, Queensland, has the right to question whether, let's just say, Tanya Plibersek put it to me. She said, how about if you have, you know, New South Wales with 5,000 cases? You can understand if Queensland was zero, um, why they'd be concerned even when they got to that crucial 70% or 80% vaccination yeah. about letting it come in. You can understand the rationale there. Having said that, the national plan is about uh, allowing business to reopen. Think about all those tourism businesses in Queensland. It is a genuine conundrum, friend. It is a genuine conundrum and things will change, I'm sure, between now and then because vaccine rollouts, we've talked about this before on the podcast, will be patchy. You can't open up if 80% of the country has um, double-dose vaccination, but, you know, only 50% of Indigenous Australians or people with disability. I mean, you can't, you just can't do that. And then there's the whole question of kids over 12. That is a, a thing, I think, that's still evolving. And, and we have this real juxtaposition now in how the states are interpreting the national plan and those Doherty targets. We heard those two Labor premiers. Here's the New South Wales Liberal Premier, Gladys Berejiklian. 70% double dose gives those of us vaccinated freedoms. 80% double dose allows us to look at international travel, welcoming home all Australians. How wonderful would it be to welcome back all Aussies who want to be reunited with their families by Christmas? Well, it would be absolutely wonderful, speaking of someone living in New South Wales, and it would be wonderful at 70% double dose. And we're not too far off that, mid-October, we think, you know, that we'd be able to then be able to go out and eating cafes and restaurants, move around. But I still wonder, PK, how that's going to be able to happen, given the Premier is also warning that it's mid-October that we're going to see, you know, the pressures on the hospital peak, the case numbers peak, essentially. I don't see how those two things match up. No. I mean, that, that idea of reuniting everyone by Christmas, I think, is a fantasy at this stage, unless there's there's a dramatic shift in the trajectory. Uh, so, no, I don't think that that's realistic. Look, what we've got here, and we've said this for a while, but there's an entirely different experience of COVID. There's not one COVID story in Australia. We're not, yeah. we're not one COVID nation. We have uh, uh, states that have eliminated the virus or really got close to elimination, really an extreme suppression. And then we've got now, New South Wales and Victoria, and it's key to mention this, Victoria has this week, we're recording this on a Thursday, on Wednesday, I think one of the most significant and historic, if when, when the COVID kind of history is written, moments in <laughs> history. It is. It's a big deal. <laughs> this has been a state that has been obsessed with getting to zero, right? Yep. Obsessed on the basis of the pain of 2020, that long lockdown, the scars of that period, defeating that wave, which I still think was incredible, and then wanting to maintain that. And then finally, Victorian Health Authority saying this week, we just don't think we can defeat Delta. And that has meant that the New South Wales and Victoria, our two biggest states, our biggest powerhouses for the economy, where most people in the country live in the cities, right? These two big states saying we've got to live with COVID while the rest of the country doesn't want to live with COVID. You can't, the truth is, I'm just going to call it, Fran, you can't have a national plan mm. when it's not a national story. It's not the same story. It is a completely different experience of this virus. And so the Prime Minister is in this kind of wicked position um, where he's trying to you know, talk about this national plan and reopening as is the Treasurer. But ultimately, um, 
you can't have one message, you can't have one story. Well, I think, um, you know, I, I know I keep saying this, I think it is going to depend a lot on vaccination rollout. Once most people in the country are vaccinated, and I think when I say most people, I mean kids over 12 as well, and I mean maybe more than 80%. But once that is uniform, it will change the psychology of the nation, I think. People will then be able to feel a bit more easier about that notion of, you know, treating it like we might treat the flu, seeing you know, maybe hundreds of cases of COVID in the community, maybe some people dying every week, but not tens or hundreds of people dying every week. But I think it's going to depend on the vaccine rollout and, and, and things will change when we have more vaccines in more people's arms, I think. But but nevertheless, what does living with it mean as a nation? Because you know, what does opening up mean? If we've got lots of cases in New South Wales and you have managed to get yours down in Victoria, it may mean that we in New South Wales might be able to fly out and visit someone overseas and come home and home quarantine and all of that, which would be great. But it doesn't necessarily mean that border to, between Victoria and New South Wales is going to be open, I don't think, because wherever you've got this imbalance, I think the border closures um, are still going to be coming in and out of play. And the national plan, I think, is silent on border closures, internal border closures, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't actually uh, make it clear that you have to get to this percentage and then you have to open your domestic borders. So again, um, you know, Josh Frydenberg has been the one I think that's most stridently arguing for that to happen, for the the, the internal borders to be dismantled. Michaelia Cash, the Attorney General, making the case this week about you know the the, the legal case around those borders. The government has since, can I say, s- stepped away from that federally and said, "Oh, we're not going to be involved in yeah. any high court challenges because they know how badly it went last time that they that they sort of put their voice to the Clive Palmer case in WA." The politics is not clear cut on this. And that's why the PM's kind of hedging a bit. You'll notice his language isn't, I don't think, um, as tough as maybe Josh Frydenberg's. It's like a bit, bit of a good cop, bad cop. That's what I feel like is emerging. Well, his language has changed this week, hasn't it? I mean, he started off pretty tough. And then during the week, he did a blitz of, of radio interviews across the states. And in WA on local radio, he said, Western Australia has done very well in keeping COVID out. And that's to everybody's credit there. And he apparently told, you know, the coalition party room that, you know, you don't want to be fighting about this. You want to try and work it out. Uh, but then the treasurer is certainly still hanging tough. Yeah, well, the Treasurer has been talking extremely tough and really muscling up, particularly to Queensland too. And I think Queensland, when we started on this point, has gone the furthest in in their claims. I don't I don't think they're, the claims that they've been making can be uh, can actually be defended with the current facts we have, and those facts are based on the epidemiology, the science. Um, some of it, I feel, I don't know, Fran, I'd like to hear your view on this, but has been rather alarmist. And I don't think it's in anyone's interest to freak out parents, for instance, about children. Yeah. Um, yes, we want children to be vaccinated. I do, you do. We, we think that's important. And perhaps the 12 to 15 should be counted in the sort of Doherty modelling. Like that, that is a legitimate argument to make. But you know, freaking people out when the international evidence, for instance, is that it is a milder disease for for kids. That doesn't mean, that does not mean it's not without risk. I I worry. I have two young children. I worry about it. But you've got to be, you've got to lead and you've got to lead in a way that doesn't, doesn't freak people out on the, on the basis of political opportunism. 
I, I think I think the the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk she went she went too far, and it was political opportunism. And saying you know what about the children when we as as we've said don't even have a vaccine for kids under twelve is just not a helpful thing to say, and it is alarmist. And I think um, federal Labor probably thinks that too. They say they support the national plan. They don't want to come out and bag Labor premiers, particularly in states like Queensland and WA, which are going to be critical to whichever side of politics wins the federal election. But, uh, you know, I, I think that they agree that she went too far with that. Um, but in terms of kids too, I, I just think we need more facts in the debate because it, it is true that kids don't get as sick, but it is also true that in hospitals in Sydney, we have, you know, wards of children. Now they're yeah, there absolutely. because they're they're infected and their parents are infected and it's probably the safest place for them. But we also have, you know, long COVID clinics in the UK for children. So it's not that it's without risk for children. We just need to get better, more information to all of us about that risk. Yes, generally kids get less sick and that is great. Yes, kids aren't in the ICU, the intensive care units, and that's great. But I, I still think, like you said, PK, there's a lot of parents who will be very worried if and when their kid got, gets a diagnosis of being COVID positive, and um, that is true too. So I just still think there's a, lot, a long way to run, and as in everything, let's just keep getting more of the facts out and less so, of the politics. Yeah, I think you're right. One extra point, which I think is key here. So we're in a situation now where we've said, you know, we've got this two-speed, basically, economy and COVID story, right? The non-COVID states and then the extreme COVID states, which is yours and mine, <laughs> and then the ACT, uh, a lot lower in the sort of pecking order, but still dealing with the COVID outbreak, right? This is... This is the key time, can I say, for Queensland and WA to do the most incredible ramping up of its vaccination program. I know supply is still yeah, an issue because people are going to scream at their podcast now and go, does Patricia not know they haven't ordered enough? Yeah, I know. I know. Supply is an issue. And that but is even the fundamental problem of underneath all of this, but that's it right. is a but problem that is there. AstraZeneca, for instance, is possible, pushing its merits, which I can say our Victorian Premier has been doing, you know, going out of his way to say get it's a great vaccine, like actually spruiking because if they can get to a high vaccination rate before, and I'm going to predict it, and the inevitable happens, they can try all they like, but now mm. that it's out of control, which it is in New South Wales and Victoria... I'm sorry, but it's out of control. Yeah. Once that's the case, it will jump your borders. This is your time to protect your citizens. This is this is the race. This is the actual race yeah, for those going. states. They can be the best model in the country, which is high vaccination before they get the outbreak. Because we're not there. You're not there, and we're not there. And and I think that's a great pity. Yeah, and in that race, both those states with significant Indigenous populations need to be particularly turning up the speed in the rollout to those communities. And on that note, I think that's the perfect time to bring in our guest. Let's do it. Stan Grant is the ABC's International Affairs Analyst. Welcome to the party room. Hi, good to be with you. Hi, Stan. Um, Stan, COVID has sadly well and truly made its way into Indigenous communities across Western New South Wales. And also, tragically, Australia recorded its first Indigenous death mm. from COVID, a man from Dubbo. Infection rates in, in little towns like Wilcannia, uh, bigger towns like Dubbo, they're still on the rise predominantly within the Aboriginal communities, Stan. Um, 
and there was barely, you know, a front line of defence. And yet the governments yeah. were warned. We now know there was a, a letter sent back in March 2020 from the Murray Ma Aboriginal Health Corporation yeah. telling the Federal Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken Wyatt they had grave fears for the town of Wilkenia if COVID were to reach them. Stan, whose failure was this? The federal governments, the state governments, or indeed the local Aboriginal health services, which would have known the parlous state of things? Yeah, you know, look, this is a really particular um, concern of mine because this is where I'm from and I, I've got family right throughout there and, and several members of my family work on, on the front lines of, um, of Indigenous health. They're working in Aboriginal medical services there. So this is something that I'm in pretty regular contact with my own family um, about and, and a lot of concern because this is, you know, as I say, this is happening to, to, uh, to members of my own family. It was sadly like we have seen all around the world, um, Fran and PK, is that the most vulnerable communities are the ones that are impacted most by COVID. If you look at the United States, um, Native American communities, I think, are suffering at 25% um, worse than the rest of the population. African-American communities, um, poorer communities, those who are most vulnerable were always going to be at risk. Initially, and you'd be call this the fantastic work that was done by Indigenous peak health organisations yeah. and led by people like Pat Turner in keeping the first strain out of communities. But we were talking about alpha and we always knew that Delta was going to be worse. And I think what we're seeing in Indigenous communities is a, a microcosm of the bigger problems in the society and also an ex ex it, it, it is exaggerated in those communities as well because the failures, and we know that COVID punishes our failure um, mm. so significantly, our failures with things like vaccination, our failures with things like quarantine have been punished. And in those communities, they were always going to be mo most vulnerable. So this is what we've seen. And we can, you can point the finger of blame at, at many different areas, vaccination, quarantine, a failure to prioritise, um, getting vaccine to communities, mistrust among in Indigenous communities with, with institutions and, and health bodies. All of those things are contributors, but this, this sadly was something as we've seen in other areas with COVID, predictable, um, inevitable, and yet still it happens. The health service says their warnings appear to have been ignored and the government has still not put any tangible plan in place, Stan. But the federal government fought back against those claims in a press conference this week. Here's the health minister, Greg Hunt. One of the things we did was establish uh, last year on the... Uh, 5th of March 2020, uh, the Indigenous uh, Working Group, um, and then on the 26th of March last year, the National Indigenous Protection Plan. That also included the biosecurity orders, which were made in my name, uh, with regards to Indigenous bubbles, which were uh, maintained until the communities and the states and territories sought for them to be uh, removed. Uh, we also put in place this year, as of uh, the 9th of March, the Indigenous Vaccination Plan, specifically in relation to Wilcannia. So Greg Hunt says there are already plans and strategies in place to protect Indigenous Australians, although Aboriginal health services clearly disagree with him. Aboriginal health groups also met with uh, Lieutenant General John Fruin, the head of the Federal COVID Vaccination Program, at the beginning of this week to discuss a, a nationwide Indigenous vaccine strategy. So I'm confused, uh, Stan. Do we have a plan or we're just making one now? What's going on? Look, Greg Hunt is right in that there was um, this plan and they did work with those 
those health bodies, and and we said, you know, we mentioned before about the success initially with, um, with that with that approach. The problem is, and PK, you know this um, as well as anyone, is that indigenous communities are not monolithic. You're not talking about one community. There is no centralised approach to this. This has been a repeated failure of indigenous affairs when you centralise planning, when you centralise control. You miss the differences between communities. Um, when we talk about the, the first phase and keeping it out of, of those remote communities, particularly in parts of Western Australia and the Northern Territory and so on, they are very different communities than the sort of communities that I'm from. Here, here is one of the real differences when you're talking about New South Wales. Indigenous populations exist within larger regional centres, within larger regional towns themselves. So if you have an outbreak in a place like Dubbo, where there is a significant Indigenous population within the town, then it's much more difficult to be able to protect those communities and they're going to be so much more vulnerable. So a, a one-size-fits-all or a centralised policy approach to this is going to miss the differences that exist within Indigenous communities. And it comes back to something that Indigenous people have been calling for forever. And it goes to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and representation and proper accountability is that local communities, local leaders, local organisations know what is good for their communities. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. That's exactly right, and that's proven in the vaccination rollout rates, which are very, very patchy, some still really low, but the rollout's really picked up speed in, in some of these towns. Well, Kenya, for instance, um, almost by 50% over the past 20 days. So when the, the effort is put in, whether it's door-to-door -door or local pop-up vaccination teams, it works. That's the frustration. It, it does work, Fran, and it works because you, you, you have Indigenous health workers, Indigenous organisations working at the front line with their own communities. You know, I don't need to tell either of you about the history of mistrust and suspicion when it comes to Indigenous communities and any sign of intervention or institutionalisation. Indigenous communities have been let down time and again by big institutions. Building trust is absolutely critical. In this, you know, I talk to my own family members and and conversations I have with them around vaccine, and they were saying to me they didn't know what to believe, they didn't trust the messaging. Um, my own parents were saying, "Oh, I'm not going to get AstraZeneca," and, I've, and I'm having to explain this and talk to them about this because they do get these mixed messages. When our communities hear this from our own people, when Indigenous health workers are involved, when you can go there and sit down and say, listen, uncle, auntie, this is what we need to do. This is why we need to do it. You build on those relationships of trust. But so much of what we've seen with the vaccine rollout right across the country, when it is, um, you know, institutionalised, um, when Indigenous people don't feel comfortable going to general medical services, they'd rather go to Aboriginal medical services. They are things that we have to we have to factor in. And then there is the other aspect to this lockdown and the punitive aspects of lockdown, the involvement of police and army. Um, we know that that also creates issues of mistrust and suspicion and sometimes even hostility. So all of these things that play out right across Australia have particular impact and particular sensitivities when it comes to Indigenous communities. 
And Stan, when it comes to failures in the control of the outbreak, state and federal leaders are playing the blame game, you know, surprise, surprise. The federal government is shifting the responsibility over the, the, the slowness of the vaccine rollout, saying that it's actually vaccine hesitancy that's driving up low take-up rates. Now, I know you just mentioned vaccine hesitancy, and I've seen it in some communities too, right, like genuine hesitancy. But I pose this question, <laughs> and this really challenges the view, the view from the federal government. They've known about the vaccine hesitancy. Was it not incumbent on them to try and address it in a very, very organised way so that it didn't become an issue when it, when an outbreak was right at the doorstep of these communities? Yeah, you know, PK, even using the phrase vaccine hesitancy, and I acknowledge that there is, there is misunderstanding, the misapprehension, mistrust, hesitancy does, put, does tend to put the blame on the people themselves. It problematises the communities. When we know there are a whole lot of factors that go into what may be called hesitancy, um, you can't fix 200 years of mistrust overnight. You, are, you know, COVID has been a stress test for all of us in so many ways, to our economy, to our health system, to questions of policing, human rights. It's a stress test. And of course, who are the most stressed, the most vulnerable communities? It is Indigenous communities, the poorest, the most incarcerated, the, low, the, the, the lowest life expectancy, the highest rates of mental illness. So of course, when you apply an emergency to this, you're going to see where that failure is and that failure is going to be exacerbated. It is rooted in the things that we talk about all the time. Proper accountability, representation, Indigenous leadership, Indigenous buy-in. These are the things that we have failed to do in Australia. You know, we, tr when we talk about things like treaty or constitutional recognition, they're not just words. They're not just symbols. They are about changing the nature of the relationship and creating partnerships that recognise cultural and historical differences in our societies. And because we've never done that work properly, when we are, apply a stress like COVID, we see exactly where that failure is. So to sheet, sheet this home to hesitancy that somehow problematises those communities ignores all of the history that contributes to what we're seeing right now. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. as we see the failures too, we also see the successes. It's probably worth noting that Victoria has has done well here. It has managed to get the vaccine rollout early to its Indigenous communities and to some degree so far, fingers crossed, protected those communities. Um, Stan, let's talk about other matters that have been dominating the sort of federal political sphere this week and particularly JobKeeper because a lot of people particularly given the news this week that Harvey Norman recorded record profits in the past financial year, $841 million, while at the same time receiving more than $20 million in JobKeeper. A lot of people, you know, raise eyebrows at that news. It was all legal, was all within the rules, but Jerry Harvey now says he's going to pay back $6 million. Stan, 80,000 companies made a profit last year while they all, all also received, amongst them, billions of dollars from JobKeeper. Should they pay it back? Yes, they should pay it back. Um, but we know that one of the problems here has been the failure of any clawback provisions um, in the initial rollout of JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Again, we come back to the issues we were talking about with Indigenous communities. And and COVID has been, a, 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 has been an emergency that we have had to respond to and our governments have had to respond to on the run. Um, JobKeeper and JobSeeker 
got us through the worst of it last year. It meant that jobs remained tied to to companies and that people would have their jobs maintained. Job Seeker gave people a boost while they were, you know, dealing with the impact of COVID. It got us through that worst of that and then our, our economy was able to rebound. It is a good thing that our companies were able to make profit um, and be able to keep jobs open. If that was what JobKeeper sought to achieve, that's a good thing. But how do we now ensure that we do recoup the money and that there is some accountability and responsibility here. And when you talk about things like Harvey Norman, I mean, those numbers just speak for themselves and it doesn't pass that, that phrase that we throw around a lot, it doesn't pass the pub test. Um, the, the issue now is how do we get back the money that, mm. was put, that, we, that we put into the economy in good faith that was necessary at the time without also blaming everything on JobKeeper and JobSeeker and, and the government because it was a worthwhile initiative. Mm. It did get people over it the hump. And I mean, it, was, it worked. It did it, work. It, it, it stopped immediately, stopped in its tracks, those long queues we were seeing of people yeah. outside Centrelink. Our unemployment rate has gone down uh, through this pandemic, not up. So it's been a massive success. So the question then is, what can you do about this? Because if you talk about retrospective rule changes, law changes, that can have all sorts of consequences. You know, someone might say, what about the person who would normally have only earned, say, $400 a week, but instead, because of the, the rules of JobKeeper that were sort of open and lax, they got $1,500 a fortnight, $750 a week instead. Should they pay it back? You know, it's hard to make retrospective rule changes. So what are we depending on? People's goodwill? I don't know. Yeah, well, particularly when it comes to big corporations, um, you would you would hope that there would be an ethical responsibility that they would have to a community. Um, I think that the 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 role of the media here in exposing just these things, the the difference between um, the enormous profits people made and the money that they received, companies made and the money they received from JobKeeper. But as you say, if you if you're going to bring this down to some sort of you know, robo-debt situation where we start chasing individuals for this and that's going to be disastrous um, and, and, I, and I would suspect unnecessary. But, but again, you know, it, it has been so difficult dealing with COVID and trying to manage our way through this. Um, and there is always going to be unintended consequences. But overall, if you look at the impact of JobKeeper and JobSeeker in keeping, keeping jobs open, in keeping companies afloat, in giving us the ability to bounce back initially after the first impact of the first wave of COVID, it did its job and probably the, the pluses far outweigh the minuses. The difficulty now, Fran, is that, and you know, you've been talking about this all week, is what is the future of the economy going to be look like? We haven't had um, JobKeeper and JobSeeker this time around. We've had prolonged lockdowns in the two most uh, productive and, and most important economic states mm. in Australia. And we're looking at some real headwinds that we're going to be facing um, you know, once we eventually start to open up. So that's something else to consider. How about transparency, though, with all of this? Transparency is so key. You know, Rex Patrick, the, the senator, has been pushing this argument. Why has there been so little transparency? That might do the trick. We might not need a law change. If you just published the figures, yeah. then, then yeah. companies might make the decision themselves. I, and, and this is what we've seen and, you know, the role of the media in being able to, um, to expose some of this as well. I mean, the, 
you know, the the shame that companies feel, obviously, when you're returning such big profits and you've received this money. I mean, for Harvey Norman, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean to pay back the $6 million, given how much it made. Um, and, and look, that that is probably that accountability is probably the best way um, to deal with this because of the difficulties in retrospective legislation and who gets caught up in this. But like I said before, you know, there are always unintended consequences with this. But overall, I think you can make a really strong case that JobKeeper and JobSeeker did its job and got us through that, that first hump. And there's a lot of people who are experiencing this protracted lockdown in New South Wales right now in Victoria who would wish that we still had that system operating. Yeah, that's for sure. Look, just on another note, the head of the Prime Minister's department, Phil Gagens, has suspended his inquiry into who in the Prime Minister's office knew about what allegedly happened to Brittany Higgins. I, I, I know Fran spoke with the Shadow Minister for Women, Tanya Plebisek, earlier this week, and she was unimpressed with the delay. Here she is. Honestly, how hard is it to walk into your office and say, who knew, who knew that, that this uh, sexual assault allegation had been made. It it just beggars belief, Fran, and you cannot conclude that they are serious about or were ever serious about this inquiry, given how long it's taken. Will we ever find out how much knowledge the Prime Minister's office had about the alleged rape before it all became public? It seems like we're just not going to get to the bottom of that, are we, Stan? To go back to your word before, transparency and accountability. I mean, there's also been criticism this week that, you know, why hasn't this been done already? Um, it's being it's being delayed again, suspended again. Um, and the question is why it wasn't already wrapped up. I mean, look, there, there are legal issues now and, um, and clearly that's going to be a factor in in pursuing this, um, you know, this, this investigation further. But, but even before, I mean, one of the things that really came out in all of this is that, you know, the, the, the open secrets or the culture that had long existed, and we've all worked in the press gallery and we know um, the culture that exists in places like that and the proximity to power and the impact of power and the unequal distribution of power, um, heavily male environments, the secrecy that goes along with that. Uh, these things predate this particular government, um, but now it's come to a head. How hard can it be to find out these things? People you would think would know exactly what had happened and who knew and when, but it's going to be so much more difficult, particularly now where there is a legal case running, to get mm. to the bottom of this. And it's so much easier to simply push this aside and say, okay, we have to suspend it because of legal reasons. Yeah, how convenient. Oh, you can bet your bottom dollar people know, that's for sure. Stan, it's great to have you on the party room, particularly this week. Thanks so much for joining us. And I hope all your sort of family and friends out there in Western New South Wales do stay safe. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Fran. Listen, they're, they're, doing, they're doing good work, those people in those communities. Really, really Trojan effort from all of them. Yeah, for Great. sure. Thanks, Stan. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from David, who writes, news reports say that hundreds of people are being evacuated from Afghanistan by Australia... But what is happening to those people? Where are they being taken? Are they going into quarantine at Howard Springs? Will they be able to stay permanently in Australia? Fran? 
Okay, well, many of the people who were airlifted out of Afghanistan are still making their way to Australia, bound for Australia, but being processed still in some of those uh, Middle Eastern countries like the UAE, Qatar, those sorts of places, and they will arrive here. Some have arrived already and gone to South Australia. Some arrived uh, in New South Wales and went straight to hotel quarantine. The government at, at pains to say this is in excess of the regular hotel quarantine places that are, are there and assigned for for overseas arrivals, so making the point that this is not taking places away from all those 30,000-odd Australians who have been desperate trying to get home but can't, and uh, another plane load or several plane loads also heading for Howard Springs for the uh, open-air quarantine um, area out there, which is run by the Northern Territory government. So they're coming, they're going into hotel quarantine or the Howard Springs quarantine, as is everybody else who comes from overseas. They will be staying. These people who are arriving have been given visas, um, and some of them who are still in third countries uh, are still having their visas assessed, but they'll mo most likely stay here. The federal government has said that there'll be at least 3,000 uh, of these arrivals welcomed and given refugee status under the current humanitarian intake. The number will probably be more in the end. But, yeah, that's what's happening. Keep sending <laughs> your questions in. Uh, we love getting them. You can tweet us using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And as we've been recording, this news has come out, can I say, and I want to congratulate all of you New South Wales people, 70% first dose has been achieved in New South Wales. Bit of a milestone. Congratulations. I can't wait till we make that same milestone in Victoria. Yeah, well you get uh, we, we get to go on a picnic, I think, uh, next week. 70% first dose, that's good, but it's still a long way from 70% second dose because that's a right. lot of that dosage is ramped up in some of the, the Western Sydney suburbs where the workforce, the, those essential workers were told they had to be vaccinated before they could leave. So that really did speed things up, um, but now there's a bit of a lag between the first and second dose. But nevertheless, it's great news and well done, everybody. If you want to follow the party room, you want to follow us, you can do so on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. That's it for the party room. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.